All right, good morning, friends. Good morning. Good morning. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue our journey here. Last week, we started off uh, the new letter to the Corinthians from Paul. And uh, so just by way of review, we looked at uh, mostly the greeting. Um, now, if you recall, just, uh, for a little foundation here, you have Corinth, uh, one of the most rich cities in the ancient world. You have Corinth, one of the largest cities, about 500,000 people uh, when this is written, which is about the winter of 56 and uh, into 57. Uh, was written, most uh, scholars believe it to be written uh, out of Ephesus, and, and, and uh, Paul's writing back to them. Now, we know that this is 1 Corinthians, but this is not the first letter, because Paul, in the middle of the letter, says, this is the second time I'm writing to you. But this is the first time that he does write to them, and he's writing about correction. And it's a difficult le- uh, letter. And, and really, last week, what we looked at was Paul's heart, right? Because we know, because he tells us in 2 Corinthians, he said, I, when I wrote that letter and I handed it off, he says, I cried because I knew that it would cause you grief. I knew it would be difficult for you. He says, but because you've repented or turned around in these ways that I've called you to, I rejoice that I sent it. That even though it caused you grief, it was for good, right? And so knowing Paul's heart and really the heart of the Holy Spirit as he's writing to them, it helps us to have a background and an understanding of what's being said here. That Paul's not just shotgunning out uh, criticisms. He's not just trying to trash their church, uh, but that he's trying to help it. And we can see that, too, as we kind of dive in today. The way he writes is impressive. So Paul's writing to a church, as, as you know, as we talked about, that there's uh, a lot of uh, open uh, sexual relationships that the leadership's endorsing. You have uh, members that are suing one another. Um, you know, you borrowed my lawnmower and broke it, and now you're, you're going to pay for it. Or I'm going to you know, sue you, and they're suing, taking each other uh, to the court system there. We know that there's people that are uh, essentially at potlucks. They call them love feasts, according to the church fathers, some historians. But they would, uh, people would bring food, and some of the poor people would come to the potluck, and then a lot of the people that have food would often just eat it and wouldn't share it. Paul says, you're shaming them. You're shaming the poor when you do that. Uh, you know, we know that some of the people that were coming to their potlucks were getting drunk at the potlucks, and then they would uh, come to the Lord's Supper, that, that time in their feast where they would eat together and remember the Lord, and they were doing that drunk. And Paul tells them, he says, some of you are dying because of that. Uh, there was interesting miracles that occurred in the early church, and for good and for bad, as it were. And so the Lord was taking some people that were, were doing that for whatever reason. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to 1 Corinthians 11. But it's in that kind of context, this kind of radical, probably a church that most of us wouldn't want to attend, a church that most of us might walk out of, criticize, post about Facebook on, you know, all that kind of stuff. And instead, there's uh, uh, some people from the household of Chloe. Uh, it's a feminine name, so it's a, a woman who has some sort of household, whether that means children or servants or, or whomever it might be, and they uh, send a message to Paul. And that's why he writes this letter of correction, because she's alluding him to that. And we'll talk about that a little later. But it's kind of in, that, in mind, in that vein, where we're going to look at Paul. We're going to start in verse 4, and I'm going to read all the way through 17. And then we'll go through it and look at this pretty awesome, pretty tremendous, comforting, corrective letter. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. 
I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, and beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the, power, excuse me, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. So Paul here, as we kind of pick this apart, you'll see in it that there's a lot of love, a lot of grace, and a lot of promise, and a lot of correction. So we start off in verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This is kind of a common thing with Paul, and you might recall too, if you're familiar with it, in, when uh, Jesus himself dictates letters to John for the seven churches of Asia Minor, you know, one of the things that he does in, in every, the beginning of every one of those is he has some sort of kind thing to say, some gracious thing to say about their church. Uh, even Ephesus, who's left their first love, he tells them, I know that you work hard, and I know that you don't abide false teachers, and I know you do the right. So he always starts with something good. And Paul does the same thing. And I think that as a side note, this is really noteworthy because if you, you kind of were able to, we kind of read it fast, but if you're able to consider it, uh, at least till verse 10, 10 out of 10 times, their Jesus' name is brought up. Did you notice that? Every single time he's, he's mentioning something, it's to the fellowship of Christ. It's to the agreement of Christ. It's to the word of Christ. And so he's speaking to these people where the primary uh, difficulty that's happening in their church, which happens in every church, is that people are exalting themselves. They're, they're, they're making themselves important. They're preferring themselves. They're, they're on their own throne, as it were. And so what Paul's doing here is he's trying to bring them back to from a self-centered operation where they have a, generally speaking, and we don't know the percentages or numbers or anything like that, but they have a gathering that's operating where everybody's trying to exalt themselves. In fact, when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, uh, he's going to talk all about spiritual gifts. And one of the problems is that people in the gathering are using their spiritual gifts to bring attention to themselves, which is a very interesting prospect, isn't it? That you can be, you can be used of God or that you can be using your gift that God gave you and actually using it to benefit yourself. So you can be exercising spiritual gifts while not walking in any kind of any spirituality, which might be a little bit troubling. But that's what's going on there. They're exalting themselves. And so Paul, from the beginning, he writes this kind thing. He, he again and again saying, it's about Christ. It's about Christ. So moving perspective, right? Now he starts it off by saying this, I give thanks to my God always for you. And you might have noticed that over and over he calls them brothers. Now again, this is the Greek word, the coin Greek word for uh, brothers and sisters. It's an it's a inclusive word that he's using. But he greets them and he talks to them. And the first thing he says, I'm thankful for you. But he says the reason he's thankful for, to them, he says, for because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So here's this radically dysfunctional church. In fact, you know, let's, let's look at what, how Paul, what he says to them. And if you flip over a page there to chapter 3, this is how Paul describes them. He says, but I, brothers, there again, relating to them as brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. That's kind of rough. He, says, he writes him a letter and says, I couldn't talk to you like you were spiritual people. He says, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ... I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul's making this said The word there, flesh, if you're not familiar with it, we just got done with Romans, right? If you're not familiar with the word flesh, it's sarca. It's where we got our word sarcophagus. Uh, it's literally, it mean, or ironically, sarcastic. It literally means dead flesh, rotten flesh. So that what's being implied there is Paul is saying, you're operating from a place of death. You're operating from the old Adamic nature. What we, what we received, whether it's a debate, I suppose, but at least seminally, and if not spiritually, we received from Adam, our fallen nature. And so what he tells them in Corinth, he says, look, he doesn't say you're not saved, right? He's, he's, he's acknowledged, he says, look, the grace of God is there. He's gifted you spiritually. You guys have all this stuff going on. What he says to them is, you Christians, you're babies. You're not walking with any kind of Christian maturity. You're not making decisions like a mature, mature person makes decisions. Just think about uh, in your own life, your own maturity, or if you have children, their maturity, and how as they, when they're little and they're completely immature, all their decisions are what? Me, 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 right? They could care less. You have a candy in your hand, they'll try to get it from you. If they were 18, if they had the strength of an 18-year-old and they were two, they would kill you and take your lollipop, <laughs> right? Isn't that what children do when your kids are taking a swipe at you? 
I mean, think about that. That's violence just coming out. Then as they get older, right, you're trying to train them like, hey, I understand you have those feelings and emotions, but here's tools that we use to deal with them, and this is how we repent and turn our hearts back to Christ and these things, and they develop maturity, right? And so instead of pitching a fit, they go, right? And they just sit there because they know. They know the fury will come. You're like, oh, did you have something to say? Because I feel the Xbox going away, right, you know, or whatever it might be. But so as, as people mature and then you grow into adult, all of a sudden, like, Christmas morning isn't about getting, it's about giving. Something changes, right? Maturity brings about something inside of you. And so Paul tells them, he says, you guys are Christians, but you're like little babies. You're only responding and caring about yourselves. You're only operating about yourselves. You're you're promoting yourself. Now, we know that babies do that in a sense in innocence. It's, It's all they can do, right? They can just cry and need, and that's about it. And then later on, I think when they're like 25, it changes. But you have, <laughs> but you know, so you have this, this comparison here where Paul just says, like, this is what you guys are acting like. And he says, the where it's coming from is this, your sarka, your dead, your old nature. Now we know from Romans that we're told that a Christian has that dual nature. We have that old nature that has been put to death. In other words, it's been rendered inoperative. We don't have to obey it, but it's still there. But we have a new nature now because the Holy Spirit has somehow attached himself. We say he's in us, but realistically he's, he's somehow attached to our souls. We have some sort of bond now with the divine. Not that we are divine, but that we have a bond with God and we receive from him instruction and encouragement and strength and all those things. And he says, you're not responding to what God has given you, this his spirit and his fruit. You're responding to the old person. The, the, the old man, the old nature, you're responding to how we used to be before we were Christians. So that's who he's talking to. So it's important as we consider that, he writes to these people that we're speaking in general. Obviously, Chloe's household is there, and they seem to be wanting to walk with God in the Spirit. So we're not making trying to make some sort of uh, blanket statement that everybody in Corinth was like that. But generally speaking, that's the air of the letter, right? So he, he's speaking to those people. So he begins, and he says, he says look, I'm, thank, I'm thankful for you. Isn't that kind of wild? Are you thankful when people are immature in your life? Not usually. Usually it's frustrating, right? It's, it's, it, gives you, it can give you anxiety. It can make you depressed. When you deal, especially someone you love, if, they, if they're acting in an immature, terrible way, it's very grievous, right? You don't even think, I'm so thankful for you, right? This is great. I'm really enjoying this. I'm so glad we could have this interaction. Typically not, right? So what does Paul say? Because he starts it off by saying, I'm thankful for you. He's going to go on in the letter. And he's going to say, the more I love you, the less you love me. He's going to say, you say that I'm weak and present. My, my letters are really strong, but when I show up, I'm, I'm weak and present. He said, you, my, you say my speech is weak. So they're smack talking him, the guy who started the church. They're, they're all these things. But he's able to write to them and say, I'm so thankful for you. But he says exactly why. He says, I'm thankful for you because the grace of God in Christ is given to you. He says, I'm thankful for you because I know you're God's people and I know that God is working in your midst. He's not done with you. He's not, he's not condemning you. He's not trashing you. He's not trying to do away with you. He says, I'm so thankful for you guys because you're precious. You have inherent value in you because of what Jesus did in your creation as physically and also now in your spiritual recreation, as it were, through salvation. So he's able to look at a person outside of what's going wrong, outside of how they're acting out or these things, and say, I'm very thankful for you. 
And this is an important concept, and I, I want to kind of pull this out of the letter for a second and kind of into our own lives, in the sense that sometimes somebody might talk to us about something that's going wrong. Or we might talk to somebody else about what's going wrong in their life in, in, a, in a, a desire to help them. This is a really excellent formula for that. Because if you come to someone and you say, hey, can, you know, can I invite you over to my house or whatever? Can we talk? Can we go to coffee? And you sit down and you say, okay, now there's some problems and I'm going to fix them. And really the problems are all with you and not with me at all. And that's why I'm here. Because I'm better than you. And I understand more than you. And you're welcome. Right? Are any, is anybody going to respond well to that? No, they're not. And, and we wouldn't either. So Paul starts by saying this to them. He says, look, to these rebellious, worldly Immature people, he says, I'm so thankful for you, and I know that God has grace for you. He has favor for you. He's doing something in your life, something in your church. This is completely foreign to our society at large, isn't it? Because it's weird how we think that wrath and dominance will change people. Interestingly enough, that James writes to us there in, in what is it, James 1 or 2, where he says, hey, the wrath of man cannot produce the purposes of God. Isn't that interesting? You see that, I think, play out, too, sometimes with parents because kids are easy to dominate or manipulate, aren't they? You're way bigger than them. You can kind of get them to do what you want. You can scare the living daylights out of them. But that'll have a fruit, won't it? You can get obedience out of children that way, but you'll destroy them in the long run. I'm not saying not to spank, but I'm saying that at the end of the day, if we use dominance and wrath to control other people, it can work for a time. We might get our desired behavior but it won't, there'll be no fruit. Instead, we see this instead. We see Paul loving and caring for a people that are wildly misbehaving. And I think that this is really important for us as Christians, not to condone sin, not to endorse it. I am not saying that. But to realize that when people are broken people are doing broken things, sin, that we can maybe help them, not so much trying to dominate them into the behavior we want, but trying to help them find Christ. To, to not just deal with the symptom, which is the acting out, but the reason why they're acting out. Why do they feel empty inside? Why are they so anxious? Why are they depressed? Why are they so angry? Right? If a person's angry, why are they angry? Instead of just coming along and saying, you know what the, 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 the scriptures say, that don't let the sun go down on your anger and only have righteous indignation. Are you doing that? Instead of saying, like, why are you angry? What happened? Is there something we can help you with? Right? Coming to somebody in that vein, I love you. I care about you. I'm thankful for you. God's not done with you. So what's going on? Can I help you in some way? That's going to yield significantly different fruit than just ripping off some letter or some tweet or some messenger message or all the things that our society trains us to do as if somehow that'll, that'll get it. As if somehow some tweet about how stupid everybody from the opposing political faction is, well then they'll all go, that's a good point. I need Jesus. I don't know what I've been thinking. I was all up in arms trying to abort babies, but now I just know. I need Jesus. No, they're not going to do that, are they? They're going to say, you're an idiot. You hate me. Why would I listen to you? You treated me that way. Right? Isn't that what they're going to say? Isn't that what we would say? When we read political jargon from the opposite of our perspective and it's in an angry form, do you go, that's a great point. I would like to further explore this. No, you scroll up and you say, oh, screw you then. And so it's really important how Paul starts this letter. He says, look, I'm for you, God's for you, and great things are, are about to happen. 
He keeps going there, and he says this. It's the grace of God that is, how, that is given you in Christ Jesus. Past tense. In other words, they already have the grace. They're messed up. They're dysfunctional. They're sinning like kings and queens, and he says God's given you grace. It's not that grace comes after repentance. Grace is always there. God's always favorable to us. Is he condoning sin? No. We'll talk about that more. But grace is always there, and that extension is so important, especially if we're going to dialogue with people and try to help them. Then in every way, so he says there's grace. It's given to you in Christ, and here's kind of the manifestation, one of the manifestations of it. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. It's uh, logos and gnosko, meaning that God has given you uh, knowledge in his word, like able to speak words of wisdom, words of knowledge. This is a reference to spiritual gifts. And then also that he's given you, uh, the, you know, knowledge, not just understanding, but the ability to perceive and understand his purpose and so forth. So he says, look, God's grace has enriched you. Enriched too, a bunch of unruly, immature Christians. This is really good news, right? Because it means we're going to be okay. Because if, if God's doing that in their life, then for us, the chiefest of sinners, we're going to be squared away. And so it's important to remember that God is doing that in all of his people. I, you know, I was in a conversation the other day in the boba shop, actually, which I'm not a big boba fan, but my daughter is. And so we went to boba, uh, and uh, I just don't understand it. But anyway, I mean, who really wants that little weird ball thing in an incredibly sweet drink that then pops in your mouth? I'm like, no. It's like tapioca. I just like, I asked him, like, can I just bring coffee in? He's like, oh yeah, sure. So he's really cool. But anyway, we got in this conversation in the boba shop and, and what it kind of turned into was like, well, I mean, almost in the sense like ministry is pointless. That wasn't my perspective, but it was, ministry is pointless because everybody's messed up. And you're like, that's a pretty bleak place to go. It can feel that way sometimes, right? Jesus even kind of it's a different context, but mentioned he said, because sin, iniquity, which is like high-handed rebellion, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And so it's easy to get calloused about people and about things where you just go, oh, they don't care, or they're this or they're that. But that's not the heart of God. It's not what God's called us to do. Instead, these people who have all the problems that they have and are not in general walking the way they're supposed to walk, Paul's acknowledging that there's grace. He's going to talk about repentance, but first there's grace. And then he says that they're being enriched and they have all these spiritual gifts. Now, your Bible may have a little dash right there at the end of verse 5 and then another dash right before verse 7. That's not actually in the original. or We don't really have the original, but that's not in any of the manuscripts that we have. That's there just to kind of denote from English translators to try to point out that this is kind of a parenthetical or a thought that's kind of in the middle of it. Paul's the king of this. If you read Paul's... Uh, letters, a lot of them, he'll start off with like, you know, greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus who dominates the world, is incredible and wonderful and paid for you and died. Anyway, hi, you know, and he kind of has these like parenthetical things. And so this is one of them. But he, he, in the middle of it, this is what he says. He says, he's enriched you with all the speech, with all the knowledge, and even, uh, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. And what he's saying is that, that, that those giftings, and what God is doing among them is the evidence that the testimony of Christ was preached to them, was given to them, that they got the testimony and they received it. Why is this important? Because this is a foreshadowing. 
Because when, as he moves on through the letter, one of the things that they're going to challenge is what the real gospel is, in a sense. They're going to have difficulty with works and difficulty. What's the, what's the true resurrection and when was the resurrection and all these things. And so Paul is just making the point that because God's been gracious and he's working and they have these spiritual giftings, that they can know that they receive the true gospel. That's all he's saying there. And so it's just kind of this little insertion from our brother. He goes on in verse 7, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So in other words, you could read 5 into 7. So to, read, to reiterate, verse 5, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge so that you are not lacking any gift. Okay, so they had all the spiritual gifts and they were, and they, and they were exercising them in, in a way that was not um, appropriate. And he says, then he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, bringing it back to Christ. So the question becomes, because he's speaking generally to an entire church, was he saying that they were all actually eagerly waiting for the return of Christ? They could have been. We don't know. We we're, have a lot of duality in us, don't we? In other words, we have a lot of conflict in our, in our souls oftentimes. We can have a great, great passion for the return of Jesus and yet have a, have a, a, a very obstinate, and difficult time letting go of this sin over here, can't we? Isn't that kind of how human beings work? And so, I mean, it could be that there, there was that kind of a duality going on, or he could just be saying, and it, which is also would be true, is that those gifts that you have are to essentially prepare you and other people in your body for receiving Christ until he comes. In other words, preparing you for the return of Jesus Christ. Because that's what spiritual gifts are for, right? They're for the building up of the body. Isn't that what Ephesians 4.16 tells us? That the body builds itself in love as every joint supplies. That, that, you know, we talked about this not too long ago. That Jesus could have decided that he would you know, have like the ultimate satellite church and satellite locations. And he could have just you know, used a, whatever, a GoPro in heaven and you know, shot himself out to all those who call upon the name of the Lord or chosen to spoke to us each individually sitting in our home all of a sudden at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning and zzz, Jesus pops in. He could do done a million things. But instead he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a bunch of really broken people. I'm going to save them. And then I'm going to stick them all in one place where they're all broken together. And then I'm going to raise up other broken people to help them with their brokenness through my Holy Spirit's power. And we were like, I really like option A, honestly. It seems easier. But that's not what he decided. Inside, he, he said, because of who we are and how we work, no, 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 you're going to build each other up in love as you respond to my spirit and as you work amongst each other. And, and think of the richness that you've experienced in your life through God's people, the brokenness and the richness. And oftentimes the brokenness, once it's healed, helps us to understand human beings to love them more. It's incredible the the divine weaving, for lack of a better term, that God manages in our lives, that in the most broken situations, he can bring life from it. And he says, that's the way it's going to work, right? And so there, there they are, and, and uh, he says, you have all the gifts, and then he says, you know, you're waiting uh, as you wait for the revealing uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so it could be either one of those. It could be that he's saying that they're genuinely doing that or he's saying, look, this is why you have those gifts and this is what you ought to do. They both can be true. In verse 8, he says this, who will, who's who? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the day of the Lord, let's work backwards on this one. The day of the Lord is an interesting concept because, the, for example, the millennial reign is referred to as the day of the Lord. That's a thousand years. You have the day of the Lord in his return for his church. Uh, it seems like, and this is just an opinion, you can throw it right in the trash, it seems like the day of the Lord seems to cover from the rapture, which I would come from a pre-tribulation rapture. If, if you're mid-trib or post-trib, I still love you, and I don't care. But not, not that I don't care about you, I just don't care when the rapture is. But it, you know, I would look at it as from the pre-tribulation rapture of the church to the actual end of the millennial reign as the day of the Lord. Other people say, no, it's the seven years. It doesn't really matter. It's an extended period of time. That's what I mean. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I don't mean it doesn't matter like it's worthless. I just mean it is what it is. So he says, at the day of the Lord, working back from that, that God is going to do something until that day, until that time, right? And he says in verse 8, he's going to sustain you to the end guiltless or literally blameless. Literally, nothing will stick to you. That's what it means. When it says the words, when he says who will sustain you, it's actually one word, and it's in the present, or it's not the present, it's in the future active, which means he will sustain you through all the future eternally. It, there will never be a stopping of sustainment. Does that make sense? Who is he talking to when he said that? You are not spiritual people. That's who he's talking to. Isn't that interesting? He's talking to them. He's talking to the Corinthians. He doesn't qualify it and say, well, the people that are obeying and doing right, he will sustain, but the naughty ones, well, to hell with you. Doesn't say that, does it? There's no, in, in the text here, there's no place where it somehow creates a, 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 a delineation or an option for one or the other. He's writing to the Corinthian church saying, God is going to do this. He doesn't say, if you repent. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, he's going to go even farther. If we look again at, at chapter 3, something that I referenced maybe a little too much, but I think it's important. In chapter 3, because chapter 2, he's going to talk all about immaturity. He's going to talk all about uh, that God has things planned for them. He's going to talk all about how natural uh, in ourselves we rely on ourselves. We can't understand God's wisdom. All these kind of things. And then he's got a little mini conclusion in chapter 3 where he says this. He says, verse 3.12, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, which is Christ, with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. What day? That would probably be the, the, the day in the middle of the day of the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment. Because, he says, for the day will disclose it, make it known, because... It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, meaning that work would be things that we did because God asked us to. God said, hey, will you go do this? Will you spend time with me? Will you talk to this person? Will you, whatever it might be. Those would be the things that, that last. He says, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, only as by fire. So he started this whole letter, and he's progressed this whole letter through chapter 3, of saying, look, you're busted, and you're not walking with Jesus like you should be walking with Jesus as believers. You're carnal. You're walking according to what you want, your own lust, your own self-exaltation. You're putting yourself first. 
So you're not putting Jesus first. You're misusing spiritual gifts to bring attention to people who think you're spiritual and holy and really great. You're getting drunk at church and at your feasts. You're denying poor people some of the food you have. You don't share. You're suing people that break your lawnmowers. You're doing all these things. And he says, and you know what? God's going to sustain you, literally hold you up. He's going to confirm you. It could be also like congeal, like he's going to make you firm in a sense. He's got you in a, you have a firm foundation, you might say. All the way till the day of the Lord. And you go, oh, but not the naughty ones. Even the naughty ones. Even you and me. And we go, no, 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 that can't be. God will get ripped off. That means that bad people will get to go to heaven. That's right, we do. That's the thing. But here's the deal. We're never saying... Just go and live how you please. Nobody's saying that. You ever, I, don't, I don't know entirely what it means by she'll be revealed by fire and, and then removed by fire. If I had to make a call, which again, this would be a little bit of an inference, so do with that what you will. It's not necessarily gospel. What seems to indicate with just how human beings work, how brains work and souls work and these things, when we do things, it becomes habitual, right? It becomes easier and easier to do. We have habitual thought patterns. Have you ever noticed that? The things that we think that we know aren't right, but they, our brains immediately go that way. It's like they become part of us, right? They become who we are. You know, we have slogans. Remember, I don't know, in the 80s where you had You Are What You Eat commercials and there's like little broccolis dancing around and stuff like that. Uh, you know, a lot of good it did me. But anyway, so you had this... You know, this, we have all these ideas, but the truth is we become what we think and we are what we say. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what seems to happen to human beings is that becomes part of our identity. If I'm a rude person and I perpetually prefer myself and, and pose myself over others, that becomes who I am. And because Jesus loves me so much and he said, I'll be saved, I can, I can build a life of selfishness, which is what they're doing. And he says, when you stand before me, that will be disclosed. It will be known. Not, I don't think for shame purposes. I think for reality checks. It doesn't seem to be, he's, we're told that he bore our shame at the cross. So it would seem weird to me that in the very end, he'd be like, ha ha, actually shame, shame. But it's in fact the idea that to, to reveal to our own selves and then to say, I have to remove it. And he says, the way I'm going to remove it, it's going to be fire. And I don't, I don't know what that means, but it sounds bad, doesn't it? He doesn't say, I'm going to inoculate you and then give you, I take a really sharp scalpel and I'll just kind of cut it away. You won't feel a thing. It'll be very clinical. I have this nice clean room next to the Bema seat. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I am going to burn it away. It's going to be fully consumed. There won't be anything left of it. It'll be completely gone, he says but you'll still be saved. And I think to myself, have you ever had a wart burnt off? Anybody ever? Who's had that done? And like, they get out the nitro, right? The, the, the liquid nitrogen. And you're like, that doesn't look so bad. <laughs> right? Because the first thing you say is like, you're going to burn it off. And you're like, I don't like that plan. That's a bad plan. Burning anything off seems like a bad plan. And then you go, no, 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 no. It's way different. It's with liquid nitrogen. And you're like, ah, isn't that the stuff you like freeze roses with and then shatter them? I don't. 
and then they hold it, and they go, oh, that's not bad. And they go, like, well, that's spicy. And then, like, okay, are we good? Right? And again, I'm not trying to like, give some sort of fear factor sermon here. That's not my heart, but that's just a tiny little virus in one place in your body. And it's just your body. It's not even your soul. And it's burnt off. And I just think to myself, I don't think any of us are going to be super amped when that happens. I will say, and this again, this is inference, so please forgive me for that, but I, I think it's inference from, I think, evidence, where he says, Jesus himself wipes away every tear, but we're told there's no tears in heaven. So where is Jesus wiping off tears? And it's just my opinion that I think that when we go through that fire, and some of us more and some of us less, but it's not for us to say of, of one another, that I think Jesus will be right there to wipe away the tears, mm-hmm. the bitterness, the, of the reality that I held on to that my whole life, that I never forgave that person, that I always shouted at people in traffic, that I always tried to dominate people because I was fearful if they knew who I really was, that I always whatever it might be. And I think he's going to graciously wipe away that tear, and then we'll be saved completely, new body, into heaven we go. So I'm by no means trying to advocate loose living because sin is, is hard. And I always think of that proverb, the way of the wicked is hard. And we probably all know that experientially, don't we? When we insist on selfishness and wickedness, that is a hard road. It's a bitter road. It's a lonely road. It's an angry road. So we're not saying, hey, let us sin that grace may abound. We're just saying, you are secure in your salvation. And God has grace for you, and he has love for you, and he will never let you down. He'll never let you go. And that should generate, I say should, I want to be careful with that because there's no guilt or shame here, but I think the more we understand that, at least it's been true in my own life, the, more, the less I want to go out and sin and be like, oh, good, I have liberty. And the more I, I want to cherish him. You know, as, as a, when I was a young kid, when I was 16, 17, I had two different bosses. The first one was Bill Farrell from Taft, California. I'll never forget Bill Farrell because he used to leave every day at 2 p.m., go down to the Eagles and just get crazy sloshed. And then he would come back in one of two moods. And one mood would be like, you guys all suck. Nah. Right? And the other mood would be like, you guys are the best. And we worked hard because we wanted to get yelled at. Because we were 16, we didn't know we had rights. And so we just, we just worked hard so we didn't get yelled at. And then I had another boss, a guy named Damien Chiapella. And he would, he, I wasn't a big drinker, but if we had like a, I used to fix cars for about six, uh, 16 years. And uh, if we had a busy day, he'd send one of the guys to go get a case of beer. I'm not advocating for that, but in his way, it was kindness. You know, just to say, hey, we're just going to have some beers and hang out for a while. If we worked hard, it was it, like some days, if we were really busy, we might work, start at 7, and then skip lunch and go home at 7. We're a really busy shop. And he would buy everybody dinner, give everybody 100 bucks at the end of the day. And you know what we did? We worked really hard for him, way harder than old Bill Farrell. <laughs> way harder. Because he cared for us. And so I think as we explore the grace of God and his kindness and in eternal security and these things, they don't cause a person to go, well, then screw it, I'll do what I want. I think they cause a person to go, he deserves my whole life. 
He deserves everything that I am. And to rob him of that is a disservice to him and to me, right? Because he's so kind. He's so gracious. Paul's going to go on here, and he's going to say this. God is faithful. Now, the cool thing is faithful there is an adjective. You go, why is that so cool? Because it's not saying that God uh, sometimes acts faithfully, right? In other words, like, there may be a time when he's not faithful. It is just a descriptive word of who he is. It's defining God. God is faithful, not God practices faithfulness, right? We practice faithfulness, meaning we repent, we turn to Christ, we try to help. We, we practice faithfulness. We're being changed on the inside. God doesn't practice faithfulness. He is faithful. Does that make sense? So Paul is now reiterating this promise to the Corinthians, bringing them back to Jesus, that God is faithful. This God that is faithful is whom you were called. He called you. Your calling is based on his faithfulness. We're not talking about tulip here. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Calling is based on foreknowledge and those, whom he, those who would choose him. But those whom they, that he would choose, he called them. And so he's called, we're called into what? Into fellowship. Not into slavery. Not into forced obedience. Into fellowship. This is the same word if you've been around Christian circles long enough. It's koinonia. Lots of churches have koinonia groups because it sounds trendy, I guess. Because it's Greek or whatever. I don't know. Makes you go, a what group? Ooh, I'm in. But, the, you know, so it's, 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 it's literally... It's, it's, it can be translated fellowship, meaning like uh, intimate, platonically intimate relationship. Uh, it's also the same word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says the cup that we drink, is it not the, the communion or the fellowship, the koinonia of his blood? And the, and the bread that we eat, is it not the koinonia of his body? Right? So he's using it, it's the form of this, this crazy, awesome Friendship and intimacy with Jesus. And he says, the faithful God called us. Our calling is based on his faithfulness. And he's called us to that communion, to that koinonia, that fellowship with Christ. Jesus put it this way. He says, I don't call you slaves. I call you friends. Because I tell you all that I'm doing. Now we say, we are unworthy servants. We've done only what we're asked. But he says, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. Or slaves, I should say. I call you friends. So he's going to go on there in verse 10. Now the, it's going to change, and he's going to start off to talk about the first thing. And really, it's, it's, it's the first thing, but it's kind of the foundation for all the things that are causing difficulty in their church. And again, it's self-exaltation. Number one, he says, I appeal to you, brothers. I encourage you. It's a kind thing. He's not saying, you better. He's not yelling. He's not having a freak out. He's not demanding. He's saying, I encourage you, brothers. Again, the, the Greek word for brothers and sisters. It's, excuse me, it's an all-inclusive word. He says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Is he saying, you know what? I'm telling you to do something, and this is coming straight from Jesus. So there. Not exactly. Really what he's saying is, just like when we talk about praying in Jesus' name, you know, you don't have to end your prayer with in Jesus' name. Because the idea of praying in Jesus' name is more, uh, it's not like a, a genie where you say, I want a Ferrari, and I want this, and I want that, in Jesus' name. And like you, like you rub a, uh, uh, whatever, golden chalice thing or something like that. It's not what he's saying. It's the idea of praying according to his will. Praying according to what Jesus would want. So when we look down here, what he's saying, he, the idea here is this. He says that he's encouraging us, his brothers, in equal footing, 
He says, by the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, according to what Jesus wants. But it's an encouragement. It's not a demand. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now, the word divisions is uh, where we get our word schisms. Uh, and it, and it Greek, the Greek word is where we get our word schisms. It's kind of fun. It's like schismata. But uh, he is essentially saying tares. He says, I hear that there's tares or division schisms among you. But that you be, he says, uh, he says I'm sorry, I'll reread it. Uh, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So he's going to go on to expand on that, but I want to make a point here. He is not saying literally that like we all have to like the Seattle Seahawks and we all have to have our favorite color be blue and we all have to... That's, when he says that you say the same thing or, or you all agree, he's not talking about superficial things. Uh, he's not even talking about in a sense, uh, peripheral doctrines, um, doctrines about the rapture or doctrines about whether there should be drums in the worship or, doc, you know, all the stuff, that, the differences that we have. Should we have incense? Should we not have incense? Should we wear ties or not wear ties? He says, he's not talking about those things. He's not saying you all have to say the same thing, right? What he's talking about is essential realities about Jesus. And, and we'll see more because he expands on that. He says here, as he goes on, um, well, actually, let me point this out, too. It's kind of cool. He says, but that you be united in the same mind. That word united is the same word when Jesus comes upon the, uh, the disciples and they're out of the fishing boat and they're mending their nets. They're cleaning their nets and mending them. That's the word he uses. It's the same word that you would use to mend nets. And so he says, he says I want, when he says, I want you to be united, the point is the schisms, the tears, he says, I want you to repair those. Instead of creating tears, and divisions in church, I want you to, um, to repair those. And he goes on, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What, is me, uh, uh, excuse me. what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he proposes, and he says, this is the first problem. Now, again, there's a quarrel, there's a tearing, there's an issue, a fight is what's happening. So these people, they're not just saying, I like specific teachers, okay? Have you ever, I have sat through teachings before, that, that seems a little aggressive, sat through. I have been in teachings before, and that's how it gets taught. That we all have to like the same teacher and the same teaching. And if, if someone speaks to you more, and it kind of it usually comes with this. This is kind of a, a, a soapbox of mine, so just forgive me. But it usually comes something like this. The word is powerful. And when someone says the word is powerful, and you just got nothing out of their sermon, what they're saying is, it's your fault. Because the word is powerful. And so just by reading it or saying it out loud, I, I, you should just get something out of it And because the word is powerful. So if you're reading or doing something, and you, it's your fault because you're weak or you don't understand or you know, whatever it might be. The word is powerful. We would agree with that, wouldn't we? I mean, that's, that's, it seems like it's you know, more powerful than any two-edged sword. I've actually never held a two-edged sword, but I feel like that'd be pretty powerful, right? You know, by allegory, by, by hyperbole. You know, the, the, the kind of the weapon of the day. It's stronger than any weapon of the day. And we, so we would agree with that. But the word is also not a genie. Have you noticed that? It's not where you just kind of like read something and go, okay, and, and I'm, I'm just changed now. I was depressed, but somebody told me to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, so now I'm fine. 
right? We know the verses. We know they're there, but they don't always help us. And so we have to be careful because he's, he's not just saying, like, it doesn't matter. Anybody can just stand up and spout the word, and we should just all like them equally. No, he's saying that. We should love them equally. But there's going to be different people that, that speak in ways that we understand and different people that don't. You know, there's certain books you can read. You know, I don't, if those of you who are here, you know, we had Craig Blomberg come here like last year or whenever it was. I can't remember. Not long ago. So Craig Blomberg is on the board that translated the NIV. He's the like premier New Testament studies professor at uh, Denver Seminary. I mean, this guy's like super legit. He's also a rare guy, and then he's like a rare intellectual, I should say. And he's really cool. He's really mellow, and he's really down to earth. And it's funny because when he's talking to you, you're like, you're like a real person. I don't. <laughs> but then I have a few of his textbooks that I've read, and I'm like, you're not the same guy. It's interesting because when you read his textbooks, they are incredibly rich and deep in the, the history and everything that he goes into. But it's, it's not relatable. Like, it's work. But when he comes and he speaks, he's, he's relatable and he talks, right? So there's just two different things, two different, you know, events. And so it's interesting because if you look at these people that are listed here, he has Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who is Peter, and Jesus, the holy guy, like, I, I'm of Jesus. Like, that's the ace in the hole, right? Like, oh, you beat us all. But Paul uses it actually as a negative example. So you have to think about these. These are all, these are all three completely different personalities. We know that from church history and from the little that we read in, about them personally. We know Paul. We just finished Romans. Paul is incredibly logical and systematic, right? You read Romans, he says, look, we've all sinned. It doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter where you come from, whether you sin against law or you sin against your own conscience. And he goes through this absolutely logical, systematic theology of how the gospel works and ends it with, now we should serve God and one another, right? And he was uh, half, uh, he had uh, a Jewish, he had a, he had a Jewish um, upbringing and so forth, and he was very familiar with the law and all that. And so you're going to have people that are like, I'm of Paul. I hear what he says. I'm, it makes it very clear in the text. I follow Paul. So in other words, these, weren't, these people weren't just saying like, hey, I really like to, to download Paul's podcast. They were saying, no, I, whatever Paul says is what, is what is true. And then there were other people who were saying, you know what, I like Peter. And we know some about Peter from history. We know that Peter was really big. He was just a big dude. He was really burly, right? The, the, the early church, uh, the other apostles called him the giant. Is it like a nickname? We know that from some of the history. We know that it's funny. He, you know, this, he's like a bull in a china shop, right? You have, a, you have, for example, when Jesus makes them all breakfast at the end, you know, after his resurrection. And, uh, and, and Jesus tells Peter, you know, he confronts him and he says, hey, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He has that interaction with him. And then after that interaction, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you're going to die. What's Peter's response? Out loud. What about John? You know, if I'm John, I'm like, shut up, dude. What are you, what are you doing? Right? But he says, what about John? You just told me I'm going to die, and I'm going to be crucified. So what about John? And then Jesus tells him, well, if I say that John's going to live forever, what's that to you? And then all, it's, it's just like church. A bunch of rumors start. Everybody starts saying, John's going to live forever. It's kind of funny. It's like exactly the same how it works today. But so, so Peter just, he just ver blurts out verbally what he's thinking. 
We also know in that same instance when Jesus is there on the, on the shore, it's a, it's a repeat of earlier when he first called them to ministry, and they're out fishing because, you know, Peter, this great leader of the people, Jesus says, hey, I want you to go wait up here, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. And then the other fellows go, well, we're going to go fishing too with you. So he, like, stumbles the entire church at that point, and, like, they all go out fishing. And then in my mind, as it plays out, you know, it's really early, and, and then Jesus is on the shore, and he makes a, makes a fire and puts some fish on it and whatever. And he calls out to them, and he says, he says hey, do you, have you caught anything? And they're like, in my mind anyway, I don't know how it really went, but I'm like, no, you know, like, leave us alone. And then they're fishing, and so Jesus says, hey, cast it in on the other side. And so they throw it in on the other side, and all of a sudden, like the, the fish, right, just like before, the fish come, and John whispers, or he doesn't whisper, he's like, it's the Lord. And Peter, he rips his clothes off and dives in the water and starts swimming to get to Jesus. And ironically, if you read the passage, the boat beats him there. And then he gets on shore after the boat. And you're like, dude, you could have stayed warm and clothed, which would have been better for all of us. And, you know, saw Jesus at the same time. Right? But that's Peter. He just he's gets some. You know, he's going for it. And so some people are going to be like, I like Peter. He's also the guy that stopped eating with Gentiles. Right? He, he, was, he was in his Judaism, and he comes to this place where he's like, I'm not going to eat with you. Can you imagine if the Apostle Peter came to your church, you try to sit down with him, and he's like, no, move along. You're going to have to go to that love feast table over there. That'd be pretty wild. Like, aren't you like an apostle of the gospel to the Jews? That's pretty wild, isn't it? So people might be like, you know, I like Peter. He's kind of a, got this Jewish thing going for us. He's kind of this burly Jew guy. I can follow that. I don't have to listen to this weirdo Paul and his like, you know, in, 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 in his upbringing and like forsook Judaism. I don't know. Peter. I'm a, I'm a Peter. I follow Peter. I don't really listen to what Paul has to say. It's a little too methodical. Makes me kind of doze off. But Pete, I'm in. Or Apollos. We don't know very much about Apollos. We know that he says that he was eloquent and fervent in spirit. So this is the dude that walks away from the podium. That's what he was like. You know, so people will be like, I like Apollos, man. I like what Apollos says. I like how he shares the gospel. I like that he's animated. And I am of Apollos. Now, see, if they just said, like, I enjoy listening to Apollos, or I enjoy, I really understand when Paul teaches, we could all be cool with that, right? But they didn't. They made a tear. They made a schism. They said, no, no, no. We're of different things. You and I were different. You're one of those Pete guys, and I'm of Paul. Even Peter says he doesn't really understand everything Paul says, so you're kind of with the weaker guy, right? So they made tears out of it. And so Paul, as we saw there in verse 3, he references it again. He says, you're acting carnally. It's perfectly acceptable to have Bible teachers that you like to listen to. If I'm going to drive to Astoria sometimes and I feel like it, I listen to Damian Kyle. That's who I like to listen to out of C.C. Modesto. There's other people that I like to listen to, but you know what? For every one guy I will listen to, there's probably 100 guys that I turn off. Not because I think they're bad or naughty or whatever, but just because it doesn't resonate with me as well. You know, even here locally, uh, I'm pretty, I think I'm reasonable friends with, with uh, uh, Chris Garrison from PBC, Peninsula Bible. He's a great guy, loves the Lord. So I didn't know this, but someone texted me the other day and, uh, and was like, yeah, PBC just started uh, 1 Corinthians also, the same Sunday we did, last Sunday. So that's kind of weird. So I thought, I'm going to listen to Chris's teaching, see what he had to say. And, uh, you know, Maybe learn a thing or two. And so I start listening, and it was funny. I, I texted a buddy of mine. I'm like, we are very different. 
Chris and I. And so in the, in, we had a different intro. We had a different perspective that we came from. He came from more of a perspective of uh, kind of comforting and world events and so forth. Uh, and I tried to come from a perspective more along the lines of like, these are broken people, and we're broken people, and broken people have hope, you know, kind of a thing. And then kind of in the middle of his teaching, very similar things got said, you know, it was almost the same in a lot of ways. Uh, and, then, and then in the end, he had a different application than I did. I will say this, and I do, it's, this is not an insult, it's not a slight, because I think Chris is a great guy. Uh, he's much more professional than me, hands down. Like, you're like, that dude's a pastor. I think with me, you're like, that guy's got some interesting things to say because he's kind of weird, but that's cool. Like, we're in, right? So there's going to be people that are, like, super more comfortable with Chris, right? And that's totally fine. But if we were to say, if we were to start saying, like, those PBC people, yeah, they're of Chris, losers. We would be so wrong. We'd be, we'd be ripping and tearing at the body of Christ. And so just because so we don't want to go there, have, your, have the people you like to listen to. That's completely legit. But never be of them. In other words, never, never reject others because of them. And you know what? Let's not just look to Bible teachers as, as like heroes or uh, being anything more than dying people talking to dying people. Because that's all Bible teachers are. And that's all they ever will be. And, and, and as long as we can keep that mentality that I think we're going to be okay, you know, um, to enjoy what we enjoy. But that's not what's happening there. So there's these huge tears happening. People are uh, taking sides. And that can happen with anything. You can get church splits over anything. And so what Paul is saying, like, we need to be menders. Stop with the, with the I'm of Apollo stuff. Stop, stop making walls. We need to be mending. Then in verse 14, he says this, or he makes the point, he asks those, those three uh, uh, questions, obviously rhetorical. Is Christ divided? Well, no, oh, I forgot. Uh, I follow Christ. You see, you think this would be the winner. Like, you'd be like, well, that's a good point. But what's being implied here is that these people are saying, I only follow Jesus' teachings. In other words, I ignore Peter, I ignore Paul. I only read the words in red, even though they weren't read yet, right? That's all I read. And you can get that today, right? You can meet Christians and they're like, I reject all other New Testament writings except for the words in red. And you're like, that's interesting. Okay. But all these other guys were commissioned by God to write about God. So they have some expansion on some things that Jesus said. If we only had what Jesus said about divorce, then we would only come to the conclusion that the only time a person could ever biblically get divorced would be for the adultery. But if we read in 1 Corinthians 7, when we get there, it's actually expanded, where Paul talks about if a person's uh, abusive or if they're unwilling to dwell with you or if they're, uh, they isolate and reject you. And there's, there's other times for that. We're not, we're not like, yay, divorce. Divorce always harms. So we're not endorsing divorce, but because we have other teachings after Jesus, it's expanded for us, right? So we, we can't go to the, well, I'm of Christ. And I, no, that's not right either. We're followers of Jesus. We appreciate where the word of God is taught in a way we can understand it. And that's good, right? We don't have to make any divisions other than that. And there's probably a lot more to be said of that because you have these radical divisions in Christianity. Not, not denominations. Denominations are great. They really are. I think so. Because then we can all go to a place where we feel comfortable. We can go to a place where uh, we can worship in a way where we feel comfortable, you know, and, and that, and which allows us probably to sing and, and let go of our thoughts and our, our concerns 
and actually focus on Jesus um, and so forth. But moving on. Lastly, he says, I thank God that I baptized. So now he's going to talk about baptism. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Uh, verse 16, I did not baptize, or excuse me, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I love that. Just the humanity. And to me, this isn't a strike against the idea that the scriptures are inspired. This is a confirmation and maybe a window into how they were inspired. In the sense that, why did they even include that? Well, there's no erasers, right? There's no erasers. Nobody's, you know, busting out a Word document here. This is a scroll. And he would have to throw it away. Because you can't just cross things out in the scroll and be like, no, it's cool. It's not like bad homework, right? So instead, they just make a correction. Maybe he, because he's dictating, Right? He's dictating, probably to Sosthenes, but he's dictating, and he's just blah, 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 and all I did was Christmas, and then the Spirit reminds him, oh, I did, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. And then I wonder, I wonder if he baptized anybody else, and they were just like, and I don't remember who else it was. Can you imagine how deflating that would be? Like, I was baptized by Paul, and Paul's like, I don't remember. I just, <laughs> there were so many dunkings going on for the year and a half, I just, do you go there? Is that... <laughs> that would be brutal, but so good for you, wouldn't it be? <laughs> but just to have Paul say, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. None of you else, the rest of you were memorable to me, but those I know. But so it's just, you know, that's, it's just, to me, it, it, it solidifies the fact that the Spirit was leading him because he corrected himself. And it got recorded for us that he said, oh, you know what? I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. And then after that, I don't know you got to love the honesty and the inspiration of God's Spirit in a life like that. We should be like that. When we've said something and we know it's wrong to go, you know what? Let me, let me revise that when the Spirit leads us. <laughs> Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not uh, with words of eloquent wisdom, uh, test, excuse me, lest the, cro- the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here's the thing. We'll get into the cross of Christ and power and wisdom and all that next week. But this is a last closing application. Paul says this. He says, Jesus did not send me to baptize. That's really important because if, if you know, a, a modern teaching in some circles is that you have to be baptized to be saved. Oftentimes that's accompanied with you have to be baptized in my church to be saved, which is most unfortunate. But if baptism saved a person, we have, besides the myriad of other passages we, we have, we have this one little inference, where Paul says, Jesus didn't send me to baptize. You would think that if baptism sealed the deal, and it wasn't just by faith, that Paul would be like, I baptized everybody twice, just to make sure. Right? You would think that he was like, I came to give the gospel, and I came to baptize, because that's how you get saved. If you didn't get baptized, then sorry about your luck. But he says, no, I did not come to get baptized. Or I did not come to baptize others, I should say. Free me for that. So lastly, this. What do we do with this? Our job is to be menders. There are topics that we will separate over. You know, if someone comes in and they say, hey, Jesus is not really God, we're going to say, well, here's why we know he is. And if they say, nope, 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 then we'll say, well, you can't fellowship with us because these are core important things. Or you can fellowship with us and you can never speak of that again. <laughs> you know, or however it works, I don't know. So there's things where you just go, you know, I just don't have fellowship with you. It's interesting because when Paul writes to Titus, he says something. 
He says, if you have a divisive person in your gathering, you warn them twice and you kick them out. Isn't that interesting? Because you would think like, no, you want that person to come in. You want to nurture them. You want to help them. And he says, he says no, someone who is divisive, someone who practices being divisive, like that's their jam. He, he, he says they're warped, literally perverted or crooked in their thinking. And, and he says their God is their belly. They're serving their own appetites, whether it's for attention or dominance or whatever it might be. So we don't, we don't want to be making schisms. We don't want to be making tearing the body apart. We want to be those that are mending. So about all, as we're involved with each other, as we're, as we're helping each other, as we're building each other up, remember that. You know, a kind word uh, turns away wrath, the Bible says, the, the Proverbs say. A gentle word or a kind word. Remember that, you know, I'm thankful for you. We can be thankful for people, even when they're just acting crazy. And people can be thankful, hopefully, for us when we're acting crazy. And then, and then we can minister to people and help them. And not try to make schisms and, and tears and so forth, but instead mend those. Agree to disagree about things. There's some of the words in there. It's interesting. It's a phrase that's pulled right out of when he talks also about united. It's a phrase that comes right out of uh, some of the Roman and the Greek Senate. And it literally, it's kind of funny. It's how apropos it is. It literally means to lay aside party lines. Isn't that interesting? The, the, the church is not to have parties. It's not to have lines that we draw and we say well you're of that and I'm of this and you can sit on the left I'll sit on the right we're not to do that anyway so we have some food and I've talked for a long time so we'll stop and eat father thank you for your word and your great kindness we appreciate it thank you for your promises to us your grace your mercy Lord thank you everything good that's ever happened to us is because of you Lord and everything bad that's ever happened to us you've used for good if we let you. And we thank you for that. Thank you that you are faithful, that you are moving. Thank you that we have received your grace. And Lord, thank you that you offer us, through your goodness, repentance at every turn, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we really want. Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit this week. Pray you bless our time together as we eat together. Thank you for food, eating a second time in one day. It's very kind of you. And we pray, Lord, that your blessing and presence would be in our fellowship. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.